welcome back to another great episode of Fraternity. I'm your host, Danny, the little brother of the show, and I'm here with none other than my big brother, Sean. How's everybody doing tonight? And you're listening to the number one horror movie podcast on the internet. That's right, I said it. What merit do I have to go by? None at all than my own hubris. But you know what? Sometimes that's all you need. Now, as you can tell, I'm pretty excited for this episode. And that's because we're flipping the script this time. We announced in the previous episode at the end that this is going to be the first time where I've seen the movie and Sean hasn't. So this movie has somehow escaped Sean. And Sean, do you want to tell the viewers what movie we're going to be talking about tonight? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I just wanted to say that, you know, we're still a new podcast and we've been playing it pretty safe in regards to the movies we've been picking because we're trying to build that audience. So we've really come out of the gate swinging with some all-time 80s classics. And believe it or not, we're not leaving the 80s just yet because tonight we're going to be talking about 1987's The Stepfather. That's right. And, you know, we always open up Fraternity with a little bit of story time. But seeing as Sean hasn't seen this film before until now, that means Sean doesn't have a story time for us. But rest assured, obviously that means I have a story time for you. I can't wait to hear it. So the stepfather. The titular stepfather is played by the wonderful Terry O'Quinn. And I can't talk about my love for this movie, and I can't talk about my love for Terry O'Quinn as an actor without talking about a little-known show called Lost. Now. Lost is... Wait, did you hear that? Oh, that was uh, 75% of our viewer base groaning. <laughs> I'm with the 75%. <laughs> I love Lost, and I love it unabashedly. It comes with the territory, loving this show, taking all the hatred and all the jokes about it, and that's fine. But I watched it in a very impressionable time in my life. I watched it junior year of high school, towards the end of junior year. And I would just come home, I would do my homework as fast as possible, sometimes not at all, and I would put on Lost, and I would just watch as much as I could until I passed out, basically, and it stuck with me. It's one of my favorite shows of all time still, and I'm not going to wax the show very much here, and I don't really want to get too deeply into it, but if you've seen Lost or heard of Lost, you know of a character named John Locke, and John Locke is played by the wonderful Terry O'Quinn, and he's one of the best characters in the show, and yeah, I just wanted to express my love for the show, and I've seen plenty of classics since then, like I've seen The Sopranos, I've seen The Wire, and you know, those shows as well are some of my favorites of all time. I'm more of a television drama kind of person. Sean, on the other hand, has always been strictly movies, like he hasn't seen that many shows, and really gotten too deep into shows where I've kind of rode that wave and now I'm start starting to have the tides turn back to movies and film again. Yeah, Danny always tries to bug me to watch Lost and I'm not a serialized television guy. I like I like my family sitcoms and my adult animation and that's about as far as I go in the television realm. And I just wanted to say Danny, I I knew you were going to talk about Lost, and I thought, how can I explain why I don't watch Lost when you, you bug me to? And it's sort of like, you don't go to the house after the party. Like, I missed the party, you know? So there's no point in me going to it. That's just how I feel. I mean, that's fair. I mean, it is kind of like the perfect example of a water cooler show. And half of the enjoyment of Lost, you know, anyone will say was watching it with people and week by week having your theories and stuff. But with all that aside, I still think it's a fantastic show. I don't think a show has ever captured that sense of adventure and mystery and had such a strong cast. I don't know. I, like I said, I don't want to get too deep into it. But yeah, I really love the show Lost. And that's where I learned about Terry O'Quinn and... One of my things that I like to do is, you know, I like to take actors that I like and look through their filmography and find stuff that they've done and watch it. So I was on Terry O'Quinn's Wikipedia one day and 
I happened to see that he was in this film called The Stepfather, and it was from the 80s, and it was horror. And I was like, wow, this seems right up my alley, because this was around 2016, 2017, and this was about the time when I was starting to get into horror movies on my own. I remember around this time, I had watched Scream for the first time, I had watched A Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one for the first time, and... There's a couple others I'm forgetting, but The Stepfather was one of those movies that I watched around this time, and I watched it, and I really loved it and enjoyed it, and I, for some reason, just never brought it up to you. I don't think you ever knew that I had seen it until recently when I said we should do it for the show, and I haven't seen it since then, about four or five years ago. Man, time just flies, but yeah, I haven't seen it since then, and I'm really excited to talk about it again and and watch it. That's awesome, man. Very cool. That's one for the record books, your very first story time. But I just got to say, Danny, you didn't think we were going to get to the movie without me running my mouth for a little bit, did you? Well, you are the big brother and whatever the big brother says goes. So I've tried to figure out how exactly I missed this movie. Yeah, that's what I'm curious about is how this slipped by. Because like I said, I'm always shocked when you haven't seen something or at least know about it. Well, I think I figured it out. And one funny thing is that I have actually seen The Stepfather too. I would catch that movie on television a lot when I was a kid. And I don't really have any memory of it. I couldn't even tell you that that was Terry O'Quinn. But there was this image that was burned into my mind in that movie with Meg Foster wearing this blood-stained wedding dress in a church. Besides that, I couldn't tell you anything else. And I also remember really liking the VHS cover of The Stepfather 2. And honestly, I don't think The Stepfather was ever readily available at any rental stores near me when I was young. I remember seeing it in a Blockbuster once when it was on DVD, though. And as you know, the DVD cover has a very gray tone picture of Terry O'Quinn's character staring into the mirror. And it says, who am I here in the condensation in the mirror? And to me, that image failed to capture my imagination. And it looks old. Like the marketing artwork for this movie looks like it's from the 50s or 60s. And it just didn't jive with me. And I really had no idea that this movie was from 1987. I literally thought like an old classic got some bonkers 80s sequel. Now I have seen it. And I'm definitely ready to talk about it too. That's so funny. Yeah, I can... Yeah, the cover is a bit weird. It doesn't draw you in immediately. But I think retroactively, after seeing the movie, I think the cover becomes cooler than what it is initially, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you're looking at the cover, you're like, wow, what's up with Bob Ross's reflection? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Well, cool, man. I guess I'm ready to jump into the movie when you are. I just want to say, like, though I haven't seen this film in like four years... Everyone has those movies that they keep going back to and like searching up clips on YouTube. I admit I do that all the time. Instead of watching the movie, I'll watch, you know, clips for an hour on YouTube for no reason. And this is definitely one of those movies that always stuck with me. So in a way, it has never left. But I have, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. Very cool. You want to do the honors and set the scene for us? So we open with the title credits, and it's very simple. It's red text on a black background, nothing nothing special at all really here. And we open on a house that looks like any other house in this suburban neighborhood. We see a bloodied man in the bathroom, and he's looking at himself in the mirror, and we'll come to learn that this man's name is Jerry Blake. But Jerry Blake isn't his name right now. This man is the stepfather, and as we'll come to soon see, the stepfather goes by various names. And he looks at himself in the mirror, and he's taking his clothes off, he's taking his glasses off, he's, he jumps in the shower and cleans himself up, and then he starts to shave his beard and his hair. Terry O'Quinn gets butt-ass naked, Danny. Yeah, we see a little Terry O'Dingling. <laughs> Reflection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I really like this scene. I like he gets out of the shower and he begins to cut his hair and shave the mustache and beard. And he gets dressed in this nice suit. And after he gets dressed, he really does appear to be a completely different person. A changed man, you could say. Yeah, right. 
when the scene starts, he looks very rugged. He has this kind of unkempt beard. Like you said, he looks like Bob Ross. But at the end, yeah, he looks very professional in a way. Yeah. So he leaves the bathroom and he's walking down the hall. He's on the upstairs of this house. So before he goes downstairs, he notices a toy on the floor and he picks it up and puts it back in the toy box. And I just like this little touch here. I don't know what it is. It's like maybe it's some sort of obsessive compulsion that Jerry has. Right, like cleaning the house. (laughs) Like we're going to see a lot of disconnects here with Jerry's mind and his actions. Definitely. So yeah, we follow the stepfather downstairs. And the further down the stairs he gets, the more shocking the scene becomes. We see this bloody handprint has dragged down the wall. And the pictures, the family pictures on the wall are disheveled. And once we do get down downstairs, we see a truly shocking scene. There's three dead bodies in the living room. Their method of murder is kept in the dark, but it is gruesome. There's blood splattered all over the place. And he hangs up a phone that's been knocked over. And he gets ready to go out the house. And as he does exit the house, the camera pans over and we see the dead body of a little girl. Yeah, I really love when you first see the bodies that sting in the music. I really like the soundtrack in this film. I don't know how to describe it. It just fits very well with that kind of suburban tone, but also very creepy and eerie. But it's also very playful. And sometimes it can be a bit hokey, but I'm all for it. I give them props for showing the dead body of a little girl, and I think that just truly sets the tone and the terror when you show a dead child. Yeah, I feel like there's a promise of violence and gore in this segment that isn't really delivered in the rest of the movie, but it definitely cements the danger that the next family is going to be in. Exactly, yeah. You just feel that dread anytime. When he's with the next family, for sure. Yeah, we see the stepfather. He's riding on a ferry. And he's standing at the back of the ferry with the suitcase that he's put all his belongings in. And once he makes sure the coast is clear, he just tosses it into the water. And then we're going to cut to one year later. And we meet a young girl named Stephanie as she rides her bike home. And once in the backyard of her house, she engages her mother, Susan, in this playful leaf fight. I really like that it establishes their closeness and relationship here with this leaf fight. And this movie takes place during the fall, as we are now in the fall, 2021. So it's a bit fitting. Definitely. Yeah, it's, a, it's fun. And then the hijinks come to an end when Susan hears her new husband, Jerry Blake, pull into the driveway and surprise surprise it's none other than the new identity of our murderous stepfather he has assumed the name jerry blake and he has remarried in his quest for the perfect family unfortunately we see that he has a real problem with his teenage stepdaughter not taking to him very much at all yeah jerry brings home a little puppy dog for stephanie and he tries to warm up to her but she just still isn't biting and he tries to you know give her call her names call her sweetheart and pumpkin but she doesn't take kindly to to any of it yeah she appreciates the puppy gift but when he gets too close and kind of touches her arm she instinctually recoils and jerry's dismayed by this and he's hoping that she isn't interpreting the puppy as him trying to buy her love But Susan dismisses all of that and says it was perfect and you're perfect. But we're going to learn more about Stephanie here. She's been very troubled and she's still reeling from the death of her biological father. She's having trouble at school. She's unwilling to bond with and is suspicious of Jerry, although she should be. And we're learning all of this in a therapy session. She goes to see a therapist named Dr. Bondurant. Stephanie is acting up and. Bondurant proposes that it's because Stephanie hasn't come to terms with the death of her real father, her biological dad. But Stephanie is dead set on blaming all of her troubles on Jerry Blake, her new stepfather. And I really like the portrayal of therapy and the therapist, Dr. Bondurant here. I feel like it's easy for films to fall into a trap of like making fun of therapy. And I really like that it's played straight. And I really like their 
relationship as it builds through the course of the film, Dr. Bondra and Stephanie, because he really does care for her, as we'll see. And he's kind of the only person that really takes her troubles seriously. Yeah, he listens and he has a good way of talking with her. But lo and behold, Stephanie ends up getting herself expelled the very next day. (laughs) So Jerry picks up Stephanie from her session and he basically asks her, like, you know, let's try to make it work. And then it's an abrupt cut to Stephanie fighting a girl in class. Yeah, and leaving a paint handprint on her teacher's back. (laughs) (laughs) I like that same day we see that Jerry is a realtor and he's showing a family a house and he takes their young daughter to the backyard and he pushes her on a swing. And while doing this, he starts talking about his daughter. And it's here where we first see him get his multiple lives crossed up. He starts by talking about Stephanie, but then he starts referring to his daughter as Jill. Yeah, and the little girl he's pushing on the swing even calls him out. Like, I thought you said her name was Stephanie. Jerry can't keep his lives straight, and it's going to come back to bite him in the ass. And it's it's really great foreshadowing for later on. Definitely. And then we get another brief scene outside the school where Stephanie's leaving, and she runs into one of her friends. She tells her friend she's been expelled. And when her friend asks her what her stepfather's going to do, she says, he's going to kill me. (laughs) How right you are, Stephanie. (laughs) (laughs) There's some good uh, one-liners in this movie. Definitely. So the next scene, Stephanie breaks the news at the family dinner with Jerry and her mom. And Jerry is obviously upset that Stephanie got expelled. He says, you know, girls don't get expelled. You know, like, Jerry can't handle this, these gender roles being swapped. Like, if Stephanie isn't the perfect daughter, we already see him being upset about this. But then Stephanie brings up that she wants to go to boarding school. And this really doesn't sit well with Jerry, as, as he believes that the family should not be split up. And it's not a family without children. Right. It isn't a family without children. And... I really like the way that Jerry stares at Stephanie here. It's this strange mix of disappointment and subtle psychotic rage. It's really good expressionist acting. Yeah, man. Like, it's it's really great to watch Terry O'Quinn kind of take this role and play it very subtly. I really enjoy his acting in this movie. I think it's really good, and it definitely carries the film when at times it starts to falter. And... We then see Scary Jerry go down into the basement to let off some steam after that dinner. And the exercise of building birdhouses calms him down. (laughs) (laughs) I like here we also get this heart-to-heart between Stephanie and her mom. And her mom is explaining her feelings about her dead father and the new marriage. And just imploring Stephanie to give it a chance. Yeah, and it's... You really do feel like Stephanie is trying, you know, as much as she may seem like she's irrationally hating Jerry. You can also see it in a literal way, like, you know, take out this murderous stepfather, take out that information. And I feel like you would still have something substantial there about this daughter unable to accept this new stepfather in in the family. Like she says, it's not our house anymore. It's his house. And it's just that realistic tone that really makes me like the movie for some reason but we also have a murderous stepfather so the horror aspect really amps it up as well (laughs) yeah her concerns are more warranted than even she knows and she does have concerns she just has this feeling about jerry that something's not right and jerry interrupts the conversation and that kind of puts an end to that scene and we end up seeing susan and jerry in their bedroom and She's kind of questioning his upbringing, and he doesn't really answer, but we get another great one-liner where he says, I didn't even exist until I met you. We then get a really interesting sex scene between Jerry and Susan, where Jerry's body is present, but you can see in his eyes that he's mentally checked out and just a million miles away. Right, yeah, I really love this You just see him just completely dissociative while he's having sex. And we're cutting between that and a very sad Stephanie doing everything. Someone that sad does is listen to music on headphones and have a little, a nice cry. (laughs) Now, I have a question here because I'm trying to understand 
the pathos of the stepfather. Do you think Jerry is shooting blanks? <laughs> you know, you might be onto something. I think the character of the stepfather is one of many nuance, and I think for sure, yeah, maybe there's maybe he can't have a child, and maybe that's why he's destined to be the stepfather and search for this idealistic family, and you know, it always falls apart. It's uh, yeah, it's it's fun to theorize about for sure. It definitely makes you wonder because he isn't that well defined. So there are questions, and that's one of mine. But Danny, we gotta discuss this B plot. <laughs> <laughs> so we get introduced to this B plot here with a character named Jim, and he's the brother of Jerry's most recent victim, and he's talking to a reporter. He wants him to run the story again and put a picture of Jerry in the paper to try to drum up interest and maybe someone's seen something. And I have a lot of issues with this B plot. I think its biggest crime is it detracts from the A plot. It's just really ham-fisted and not handled well at all. And I think it's these scenes that make this movie kind of fail as a psychological thriller. I think the first time I watched it, I felt the same way about the gym scenes where I was just like, you know, I want to see the stepfather more and get away from this plot. But watching it again, I had a new appreciation for these scenes and the way it builds up into the climax. And I don't think it they ever take too much time away from the main plot. That's just in my opinion. But I'm, you know, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on it for sure because i can i definitely understand not liking this part of the movie the b plot well i just think the character of jim isn't interesting and he's not even likable like he's supposed to be sympathetic but he has no charisma yeah i can see that but to me he kind of comes off as like yeah he is messy like he isn't i don't know like he's fueled by revenge but he's also a little sloppy in his work with the reporter and with the cops and everything. But yeah, he doesn't have much in terms of personality. It's all kind of to connect these two stories together in the end. You know, connect the opening murders with everything that's happening with Stephanie and her mom. And all leading that to coincide towards the ending. Well, that's all well and good. But Danny, the biggest sin of this B-plot is in how inconsequential it ends up being. It's actually kind of a waste of time, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but it's just unnecessary. I think the film could really succeed without it, too, so that's all I'll say at this point. That's fair, and I'll talk about it when we get to that part, for sure. Yeah, so after this little excursion, we get a backyard barbecue scene where Jerry and some of his friends end up seeing the story of the Morrison murders in the paper, and. I don't know if Jerry's acting or really believes what he's saying here, how he acts really upset by it. But when one of the friends asks how someone could kill their family like that, he kind of slips up and says, maybe they disappointed him. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting how, yeah, it's almost like you believe that Jerry really is upset and that he almost doesn't recognize his own work when he's reading it in the paper, which just it just opens up the possibility is like, does Jerry have like multiple personalities when he makes his new identities? You know, it's really interesting, subtle stuff here that I like with the character of the stepfather. And I like too when he's, uh, you know, he says, I thought this was a party. And he turns the newspaper into a hat for a little boy. And, you know, Jerry's all smiles and he looks at Stephanie and Stephanie's just watching him back in like distraught, like just total disgust <laughs> when looking at Jerry. Even when he's having a good time, supposedly. Yeah, we then join Stephanie in the basement as she goes to fetch some ice cream for the party. And Jerry goes down there and just snaps into a frenzy. And he doesn't know that Stephanie's there and he's just having a psychotic episode. And it's here that I kind of wanted to discuss Jerry a little bit. Sure, yeah, I think this is a, an interesting character scene for Jerry, for sure. Yeah, I think this scene is really revealing of the inner conflict inside Jerry in relation to his attempts at holding a family together. Because, again, we aren't given any insight into his past, but we're left to assume and we're given the slightest hints that it was tumultuous and strict. And 
we also aren't really given motivation in any spelled out type of sense. And to me, what is so interesting about this breakdown scene is it makes you wonder just who the stepfather really is personality wise. Does he even really hold all these conservative family values or is that all just part of his mask of sanity? Right. Yeah, I think Jerry or rather the stepfather, he kind of builds his personality around this portrait of the perfect American family. And once it starts to crumble, once the realities of hardship and family reveal their ugly head and the family starts to break down, so too does Jerry's mental state. And yeah, it's just fascinating to watch. And, you know, he's having this breakdown and he's like pointing at, you know, nothing and saying like, we're going to keep this family together. And then he's doing another voice that's saying, let me out, let me out. So I think he's like having internal battles and all sorts of struggles. And, you know, this movie definitely has a theme of, you know, a sense of identity and who really are you? So I think it's really interesting stuff. And, you know, it's just the common theme of horror of like, what is your identity? (laughs) Yeah, I like it. And the character does lack a bit of definition and that may well be intentional, but Either way, Terry O'Quinn is just able to overcome any issues that might arise from it with the performance, and that performance really holds it all together, where they could have just as easily fallen apart and not made any sense. Absolutely. I think uh, if you put a less good actor in here, it definitely would come off a bit dumb and hokey and non-believable, but yeah, Terry O'Quinn does really great work with the role and gives it his all for sure. The other important aspect of this scene is Stephanie is now even more suspicious and she even goes back upstairs and ends up finding the newspaper and reading the article for herself. Yeah, Stephanie gets the idea to send a letter to the Seattle Examiner for a picture of the killer from the article and she's telling her friend this, her plan, and her friend is like, so you have suspicions about Jerry. So that means Jerry is this killer. Like, even her friend is kind of calling her out. Like I said, I really like that, you know, nobody is really on Stephanie's side except for Dr. Bondurant. Yeah, most people just think that Stephanie is being a sensationalist. But yeah, we're going to get all kinds of rising tensions here. Like, we get another B-plot scene where Jim confronts the reporter due to the fact that there was no photo in the article. And the reporter explains there's only so much he can do. And neither of them realize how successful the article actually was since Stephanie is putting in that request for the picture. And Stephanie goes and has another session with Dr. Bondurant, and he isn't against her boarding school idea, and he offers to speak to Jerry for her. And then we cut to the house with Jerry checking the mail, and he finds the photograph of himself that was requested by Stephanie. Yeah, I like this little interaction between him and Stephanie when he's hiding the mail from her. And she asks, uh, did something come for me? And he says, yes. And she says, can I have it? And he says, well, I don't know if it's something you should be looking at. We get a pause and then Jerry hands her the Cosmopolitan magazine and then takes the photo inside for himself. (laughs) Yeah, and it's time for another basement birdhouse rage fest for Jerry. (laughs) He's having a bigger breakdown than he just had. You know, he's he's punching this old photo of him and he has this Polaroid photo that was taken at the party and he's punching that. He's going crazy. He's he's sifting through his tools and making stabbing motions. And we're getting this really tense arpeggio uh, synth and it's really great. And we're cutting from Jerry having this breakdown up to Stephanie in the room playing with the dog and then back to Jerry. And then we cut to Susan decorating a cake. And the music is tense, and then all of a sudden, everything is broken once Susan calls for Jerry to tell him that dinner is ready, and Jerry just snaps out of it. Yeah, I really liked that. He was fondling a hammer. (laughs) Like, we can only imagine what was going on in his imagination. But yeah, the the dinner call calms him down, and then Dr. Bondurant calls, but Jerry refuses to take the call, and... After that, we're going to cut to a scene where we see Jerry at a Photoshop and he gets a decoy picture. And after that, we get a little bit more of the B-plot 
And basically it just establishes that Jim has now armed himself with a gun and plans to take the law into his own hands. Right, he talks with this uh, lieutenant, and the lieutenant says they don't really have any leads and there's nothing they can do. And then Jim asks if the lieutenant was in his shoes, what would he do? And he says he'd blow the son of a bitch away, and then we cut to Jim at a shooting range. (laughs) Immediately. Such an abrupt cut. I I thought that cut was funny. (laughs) Spoiler alert, but those lessons aren't going to (laughs) help. But Jerry also gets Stephanie reinstated in school. And after that, we see Stephanie back in therapy. And despite all of this, she's still suspicious. And when she raises the question of why Jerry wouldn't meet with Dr. Bondurant, this makes him a little suspicious also. And then we're going to get a brief scene of Stephanie bonding with a boy from school named Paul. And the two of them clearly like each other. And then Stephanie does check the mail and she finds the fabricated correspondence that Jerry has left for her. Yeah, she opens it up and it's uh, not Jerry. It's some other guy that kind of looks like Jerry. (laughs) Same haircut, same beard. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder why he chose someone that looked (laughs) similar. You know, why not pick someone that uh, was completely different looking? (laughs) Yeah, kind of weird. I was like, where did he even get the picture of this guy? But either way... Dr. Bondurant, in an effort to meet with Jerry, calls him at his work and he uses a fake name and asks to be shown a house. And during the showing, Dr. Bondurant takes the opportunity to ask a lot of probing questions of Jerry. And he's also developed this bachelor persona that just really gets under Jerry's skin. Right. In in an attempt to mask who he really is, Bondurant is basically saying the traditional American family is bullcrap and trying to get under Jerry's skin and trying to really crack the nut. And then eventually Jerry even calls him out and says, are you interested in buying the house or me? And Bondurant apologizes and says, uh, you know, it's a force of habit. My wife gets on me for that all the time. And this is when the lie that Bondurant has been strewing along cracks. And Jerry says, I thought you said you were a bachelor. And Bonder attempts to course correct and says he's recently divorced and forgets that he isn't married sometimes. But Jerry is already suspicious. So Jerry takes a two by four and starts thwacking Bonder. <laughs> yeah, I really like how in shock Bonder is during the assault because I don't think he really had an expectation of Jerry being crazy, much less a killer. Right. Even in like when he's on his knees, he's still in disbelief that Jerry is even going to kill him here. (laughs) Yeah. And Jerry is actually under the impression that Bondurant is a detective or a cop. And for whatever reason, Bondurant stays in character. But either way, it's too late. You know, there's no getting out of this alive. And Jerry does bludgeon Bondurant to death. Yeah. I like how this kill almost feels like I mean, it is an execution, but it feels like an execution. Like, Bondurant is on his knees, and Jerry is just hammering him with this 2 by 4 on the top of his head, like, multiple times. And we get a good shot of Bondurant's bloody face, and then we get that final whack, and Bondurant falls over. And then Jerry ends up ra- wrapping Bondurant and the weapon in this uh, painter's paper. And then Jerry takes Bondurant and Bondurant's car over to this cliff, and he puts Bondurant in the front seat, puts his foot on the pedal, and then he puts some of the paper in the gas, and then lights it on fire, and then stages an explosion. And this explosion, this car erupts into a bright-ass fireball, (laughs) to say the least. It's an American-made car in the 80s, Danny. It's gonna explode no matter what. (laughs) I don't think he needed the paper in the gas tank. (laughs) Yeah, I think it just needed to hit a rock and it would have (laughs) exploded. Yeah, that was a pretty elaborate staging he did there with Bondurant's corpse in the car to make the accident. But I'm gonna suspend my disbelief there and figure he pulled that one off. I mean, Jerry walks home after that, too, because he has no car. And it's just like, how far did he have to drive <laughs> to get to this <laughs> cliff with nobody around? It's a good question. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a good scene. I like this kill and the, the aftermath of it. Yeah, it is cool. And the next day he goes to the garage and finds Stephanie working on her bike. And he informs Stephanie about the quote unquote accident. And 
she's obviously really distraught by this news. Another father figure in her life is now dead, but Jerry uses this as an opportunity to bond with her. Stephanie's crying and they embrace, and then Jerry has this creepy line where he says, in, in Bondurant's own strange way, he brought them together. And it's just, it irks you. It's so weird. But I guess Stephanie didn't hear it or pay much mind to it. Because soon after that, we see that uh, Jerry and Stephanie are finally bonding and getting going on well together. Yeah, Jerry's desired perfect family does start to materialize at this point. And they finish the birdhouse together and make amends. We get a few more B-plot scenes that just show that Jim is getting closer. And funny enough, you said this movie takes place in the fall. But not only are we doing this in the fall, it's November, and we get a Thanksgiving dinner scene here. I just gotta say, they're entirely too dressed up for this small little Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) There's just something about this Thanksgiving scene that, like, it's just kind of pleasant to watch Jerry and Steph, like, really get along. Like I said, there is substance to this relationship, even if you take out the killer stepfather aspect of it. So... Even when you have that knowledge, it's still nice to see them all working together as a family for this brief moment. Yeah, because as quickly as things came together, they're immediately about to fall apart. Because Stephanie goes and hangs out with Paul one night. And when he takes her home, Stephanie and Paul share a kiss at the front door. And Jerry sees this and it just sends him into a rage. And he demands Paul get his hands off of her. He's saying, she's 16, you could go to jail. And Paul's like, I'm 16 too. <laughs> and he's like accusing Paul of practically raping her there. And He was practically taking her clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephanie tells Paul to just go. And we see the same old wedge has been driven between this family. And despite being at fault, we can tell it's time for Jerry to find a new family. Because the next day, he leaves his job. When Susan tells Jerry that, like, you just ruined all the progress you made with Stephanie, and Jerry walks forward a little bit, and you see on his face, like, he seems genuinely sad, but quickly his face just turns to scorn, and he knows what he has to do now. He knows it's all crumbling, and there's no turning back. That killer inside has finally awakened. Yep. And after that, we get a brief scene where our B-plot hero, Jim is now in town in search of recent marriage records because he's basically figured out the stepfather's M.O. and he's driven to stop him. And then we're going to get a brief scene of Stephanie skipping out on her new therapist and she goes to sit inside Dr. Bondurant's office. And while she's in there, she notices a scribbled note on his desk about meeting with Jerry. And this draws her suspicion, but ultimately it's going to go nowhere, except it does give us a kind of funny scene. And meanwhile, we find Jerry back on the ferry and he goes in the bathroom and we watch him elaborately change his appearance again. This time he dons a mustache and we find out he's actually wearing a toupee and he's got a far more balding hairline. It's very interesting to watch uh, him change his appearance and he really sells it. You know, he he really does look like a completely different person when he makes his changes. (laughs) Yeah, he goes to a job interview in the new town to set up a job. He's going to be a insurance agent in his new life. And then we do get that funny scene I was mentioning where Stephanie goes to the house Bondurant was murdered in, and she ends up scaring the shit out of this realtor. She screams, and he's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> But then she just runs out, and he just apologizes to the people he's showing the house to. He's like, sorry, it's supposed to be empty. <laughs> I thought I thought the way he screamed back at her was really funny. And then we get another dinner scene and we can see that the Blake family is completely fractured, but it isn't quite murder time just yet. Right. Jerry still has a lot of work to do in setting up his new life so he can have a smooth transition when he gets rid of Stephanie and Susan. Yeah. So the next day, Jim has procured a list of recently married divorcees with children, and he's using that to figure out who may be the the stepfather he's looking for. And eventually he gets close enough to encounter Susan, and he gets a detail here that Susan's husband sells homes, and that's going to end up being very important. And we also see the stepfather, 
he's now going as Bill Hodgkins and he's at his new rental home and he approaches his new neighbor and he introduces himself under that new pseudonym. And his eyes just light up when we learn that his new neighbor is also a single mother. So he has now established his next target. And there really is only one thing left to do. Right. I like when in one scene, Susan asks, like, you know, what are we going to do about the family? You know, we have to fix this. And Jerry just responds, I'm taking care of it. (laughs) Yeah, she says, by yourself. And he goes, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) mm-hmm. Susan also calls Jerry's office, though. And she's told he no longer works there. So now she has some suspicions or she's just confused. and. Meanwhile, Jim, through a process of elimination and a bit of luck, has narrowed his investigation down to just Jerry. And he's rushing over there to stop the imminent tragedy that he's unaware of. So Jerry comes home and Susan calls him out and says that she called the receptionist and she couldn't get a hold of him. And and they told her that Jerry hasn't worked there for a couple days. And then Jerry blames this on the new receptionist. He says, you know, it's her fault. And then Jerry's going to call the office and try to fix the mistake. And then Susan says, it's okay. She probably just got the name wrong. After Susan says, you know, they probably got the name wrong. Jerry says, Hodgkins, what's to get wrong? And he ends up mixing his identities up here. And this is really when the house of cards begins to crumble. Because Susan says, what did you just say? And we get that great line. We get the tagline on the front of the box where Jerry says, wait a minute. Who am I here? questioning his identity and then susan answers back jerry and then we see jerry remember his own identity or one of his identities (laughs) (laughs) you know for such a convincingly conniving killer that the stepfather is he sure makes a lot of mistakes here yeah i think maybe uh he's just reinvented himself one too many times because we do establish that the murder at the beginning of the film probably isn't the first time that jerry's done this Right, I don't think it was. But once he reestablishes this fake identity, he turns and he just thanks Susan before striking her across the face with the phone. And she's bloodied and befuddled. And she's looking at Jerry, confused. And she flees towards the basement. And during a struggle, Jerry punches her and knocks her down the stairs. And she takes a really bad tumble. And Jerry leaves her for dead and goes to the kitchen for a knife. And we get a really scary scene here where we think that Jerry's about to kill the family dog. (laughs) Anything but the puppy. (laughs) You can't kill the dog. But luckily for the dog, an oblivious Stephanie returns home. And the dog goes running after her. And she goes upstairs to take a shower. And Jerry's standing there in the kitchen and he says, You've been a very bad girl. Yeah, Jerry's making his way up the stairs, but Jim shows up at the household at the perfect time and knocks on the door to no answer, and then Jim finally walks into the house, but unfortunately for him, Jerry is hiding behind the front door, and I really like this interaction between them when Jerry's, you know, he, he never acts like a killer, he just, he always has that front, and he's like, Jim, Jim Ogilvy. Jim calls out that there's blood on Jerry's face and Jerry goes to wipe it with his finger, but he uses the hand that he's holding the knife in and Jim is shocked by the knife in Jerry's hand. (laughs) (laughs) And then Jim goes to pull out the gun in his pocket, but it gets stuck. And this gives the perfect opportunity for Jerry to stab Jim right in the stomach. And just like that, our B plot has concluded. (laughs) So you don't like this B plot red herring right it's just a waste of time and it ends in comedy here with like you said i do like how again the stepfather's just making all kinds of mistakes first he recognizes jim and jim's like uh blood (laughs) but why would he do that and then when he reaches up to touch his face with the hand he's holding the knife behind his back with and jim can't draw the gun and ends up getting killed here Literally, this whole B-plot is only to introduce the gun into this final scenario. And we could have saved a lot of time and got a gun into this household way easier. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. It's definitely just to get the gun there. But I don't know. There's something about building up Jim and then him just dying so quickly and easily and not being prepared when he finally sees Jerry. There's just something about that that I enjoy. And it's just like, 
a slap in the face to the audience. But it's also leads to like, oh shit, like what's going to happen next? I don't know. I'm a fan. I get, I totally understand where you're coming from though. I don't, I don't blame you. <laughs> right on. So Jim is dead. Our B plot is dead. <laughs> and Jerry finally gets to head upstairs and he enters the bathroom. But Stephanie is no longer in there. But we see her coming down the hall, drying her hair and not really looking where she's going. And she walks right up to a blood-covered, knife-wielding Jerry. And all of her suspicions about her stepfather are fully realized in the blink of an eye. You want to talk about unrealistic? I've never seen a woman take such a short shower. (laughs) Yeah, we forgot to mention that uh, we did get some Jill Sholin nudity, which I was very shocked by because... I've seen a lot of Jill Sholin late 80s horror movies, and I can't recall ever seeing her do the nudie. (laughs) And she's 16, for crying out loud. (laughs) He was raping our daughter. (laughs) (laughs) So Jerry lunges at Stephanie with the knife, but she manages to sidestep him, and she goes back into the bathroom and locks Jerry out. And I really love how Jerry just goes nuts on this door. (laughs) Yeah, you can see... The marks he's making in the door from slamming the handle of the knife on this door. And it's causing the mirror on the opposite side of the door to fall apart and break. And this gives Stephanie a chance to draw a weapon because she grabs a towel and uses it to pick up one of these pieces of broken glass, broken piece of mirror. And then Jerry finally breaks through the glass, breaks through the door in this awesome shot. And then Stephanie stabs Jerry in the forearm. Yeah, that looked like it hurt. (laughs) So they go running out into the hall, and Stephanie doesn't go downstairs because she's shocked by the body of Jim. So she runs down the upstairs hall, and she manages to enter a closet that has access to the attic. And she gets up there, and while she's up there, there's this great bit where Jerry's climbing up, and he nearly gets his head taken off when she just hurls a sled at him. Jerry gets up into the attic, but Stephanie is hiding, and Jerry has this very uh, calming tone when he's calling out for her. He's saying, it's all just a game, Steph. Like, don't worry about it. And I really love the way he can juggle being this enraged killer and also still juggle this persona of the stepfather, of this great stepfather. I just think it's awesome. And I really love this climax because they utilize like almost every part of the house. You get Susan going down the basement. You get Jim killed at the front door. You got all that's going on in the upstairs with the bathroom. And you got up here in the attic. So Jerry finally finds Stephanie and Stephanie starts running away. And she's, she's balancing on the boards with the insulation. And Jerry's following closely behind her. But Jerry takes a misstep and falls through the insulation and falls into the bathroom. And it, this looks like it hurt. Jerry is going through a lot here. <laughs> yeah, he's knocked out. And yeah, you know, it's funny because we really don't see any of the connecting halls or anything of the house before this. We've only seen the kitchen, the dining room, and the bedrooms, and the basement. So yeah, they go all over this house, and Jerry does take a wrong step and crashes through the ceiling. Rookie mistake. He's <laughs> he's unconscious, and Stephanie attempts to flee, but when she gets to the stairs, she sees her injured mother climbing up the stairs, and it causes her to pause and Jerry comes out of nowhere and grabs Stephanie and just tosses her down the hall and he turns to face Stephanie and we see that Susan has picked up the gun and she fires a shot right through Jerry's shoulder and this causes him to tumble halfway down the stairs but he really wants to kill Stephanie so he attempts to climb back up the stairs and after an errant shot Susan puts one through his leg And Jerry tumbles down the stairs again, but he's still persistent and he's climbing back up. And Susan can only watch on in horror because the gun jams. And Jerry reaches the top of the stairs and Stephanie just drills him in the chest with the knife. (laughs) And Jerry's last words to Stephanie are, I love you. And then Jerry takes a final fall down the stairs. I love how he, I love how he crashes into the banister. (laughs) And, like, it still holds him upright, though. Yeah, it breaks. Yeah, it's awesome. We see a bloody Jerry resting against the banister, and the knife is just sticking out of his chest. And then his consciousness fades. And our final scene 
is of Stephanie in the backyard. We don't know how much time has passed, but she's using a sawzall to cut down Jerry's birdhouse. And once the birdhouse crashes to the ground, mother and daughter embrace. And that's the end of our movie. Yeah, the birdhouse made up to look like a typical suburban home has fallen. And that's our last shot. So, Sean, what do you think of The Stepfather? What do you think of the first film that your brother has, your little brother has shared with you? (laughs) I'm really glad I finally got around to seeing this movie. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think this movie is a bit of a happy accident because the movie was aiming to be more of a psychological thriller. And I think it does kind of falter in that regard. Fortunately, the film is just cornball enough and violent enough and late 80s enough to really work in the slasher genre. It also works for me as a serial killer movie. It's sort of like Maniac or Henry, but not as serious. And it works for me like that. And I definitely think it deserves a place in the pantheon of 80s horror slashers. And due to it being an 80s horror slasher, it also spawned a moderately successful franchise, which I don't think it would have had if it didn't lean into those elements that made it falter as a psychological thriller. If it were just played straight, I don't think it would be a franchise. And again, I can't say how much of this is intentional or a happy accident, but regardless, it just works out. I will say, again, like I said towards the beginning, I feel like there is this promise of violence and gore that the film doesn't live up to, but regardless of that, it's just served so well by Terry O'Quinn and his great performance. And I'm also a big fan of a lot of late 80s and early 90s Jill Sholin films, so I can't say how her presence or absence may or may not have affected my enjoyment, but as it stands, I do really like this movie. I'm really glad I got around to watching it finally. Cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And yeah, I like this movie a lot. I think it's a great blend of a little bit of psychological thriller and a little bit of slasher horror and I do think they meet up intentional or not to make something very unique and very great and yeah I think the character of the stepfather is just fascinating to think about and I think him as a character is interesting to watch and probably a big reason why it led to have you know a little franchise of its own and I just think the story itself about Jerry trying to build this American idealistic family and it's just a critique of you know American tradition and I really like the ending here because you know symbolically they have destroyed that idealistic view of the American family but Susan and Stephanie are able to move on they are able to stay a family and stay together without that paternal figure in their life so yeah I really like this movie I don't know how much of it is because I have such a deep love and appreciation for Terry O'Quinn, but I think he does fantastic either way. And Jill Sholin is really awesome in this film as well. Very cool. I'm glad I got to share it with you. Definitely. And I'm really looking forward to more of your flipping the script episodes after this. Absolutely. So, Sean, I know this film is a little light in the killing department, but did you have a favorite kill? Well, you said it, man. (laughs) Once again, (laughs) Danny. This is two weeks in a row where we're left without many options. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to go with Jerry. I know that the stepfather returns, but for the sake of this film, I'm choosing his death. It's a rewarding kill as Jerry goes full slasher villain at the end and takes an inhuman amount of punishment before succumbing to his multiple stab and bullet wounds. I think the jagged piece of glass through the upper arm looks particularly painful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nasty. And in the bit where he clumsily crashes through the ceiling and knocks himself out, we get some great 80s squib action when he gets shot on the stairs multiple times. And then the final stab wound right through the heart is fantastic with the knife just sticking out of his chest. And... I gotta give it up to that wonderful tumble down the stairs for the final time. And the way he crashes into that banister and it snaps, but it stays upright and just holds him in a seated position. And you just know that this arrogant asshole piece of shit can't possibly fathom how he lost the upper hand and got beaten here. 
And that's just delicious. <laughs> you know, in a way, Jerry thinks he's doing the right thing, which is probably the scariest thing. So how about you, Danny? What was your favorite kill? My favorite kill? I gotta go with Dr. Bondurant. I just think this kill has a lot of good buildup with Dr. Bondurant prodding Jerry for information about himself and Dr. Bondurant slipping up. Just fits with the themes of the film with lies just crumbling. And like I said, I think this kill feels like an execution when Jerry is just pummeling Dr. Bondurant with this two by four and you get a great shot of Dr. Bondurant's bloody face. I think they did really well with the makeup here. Yeah, I think it's great. And I, I just like the back, back and forth between them when Jerry's like onto him. He's screaming like, you know, this house isn't right for you. This house is for a family. And it really just shows <laughs> truly what Jerry believes in is the traditional American family. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Bondurant kill. It's a good kill. And I think I like the aftermath too. Maybe not the car bit, but when he's wrapping him up in that paper. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So Sean, how about a favorite scene? My favorite scene is the who am I here bit between Susan and Jerry. That's mine as well. Yeah, I really want to talk about this scene because I actually held back because I wanted to discuss it here. But this scene has a very realistic and violent portrayal of domestic violence when Jerry strikes Susan in the face with the phone. And yeah, I, I don't he's have like, any... He strikes her with the phone, but then he's speaking sweetly to her like, Susan, like, and she, she's just like, not even necessarily mad, but just kind of in shock at what is happening. You know, you're totally right. It does have this kind of grounded in reality feel to it. Yeah, Susan is good in this movie but she is kind of the weak link in the a plot but she really delivers here after she's hit the makeup department really did a fantastic job bloodying her face up it looks very realistic and it hits hard because it's effectively shocking and hard to look at but the best part is her acting because you can see she truly loves jerry and has no suspicions like her daughter does and it's this love she has for him that doesn't allow her brain to process what is actually occurring. You're right, she's in shock. She's just been struck by her husband. But she isn't immediately fearful, she's just confused. And I just really think it's brilliant acting here because you can pick up on so much with so little. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. And like I said earlier, we're... I would rewatch scenes on YouTube. This is one of the scenes that I always looked up. The who am I here line is just great. You finally see everything crumble right in front of Jerry. And, you know, when he says, who am I? You genuinely see that he's kind of confused for a moment and trying to piece together his lies and which life he's living. It's really great stuff. Really great acting on both of their parts. Yeah, I, I love this scene, too. Well, all right, man. I guess that about covers it. I guess the only thing left to say is do background checks on any potential husbands. <laughs> yeah, if your husband doesn't tell you about his past, that's a red flag. You heard it here first at Fraternity. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, that's another great episode in the books. Awesome. Yeah. So if you want to tweet at us, you can find our Twitter at Fraternity. That's at Fraternity. You can email us. We have an email. It's fraternity at gmail.com. And we have a YouTube. Go check out our YouTube channel. We are in the process of uploading our previous episodes there, but they have a twist. They have a visual twist. And I really implore you to go watch that. And if you like what you hear, you can rate us, like us, subscribe, do any of those things, click the bell. I don't know. All that stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> if you like us, if you dig us, we dig it. Yeah, thanks to everyone who's given us ratings, comments. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to bringing you another slice of horror next week. It never ends here at Fraternity. Good night, everybody. Good night.